I remember a conversation with my dad when I was a teenager. We uh, had a trucking business, so we hauled to a lot of people. This one account we used to haul to, these two bachelors, they had a dairy, they had a farm. Everything was old. Tractors were old. House was old. They drove outdated vehicles. My dad said, never uh, judge by appearance. These guys are multimillionaires. I've known them. I knew their, their parents. If you'd send them a bill, within a couple of days, the check would come back. And a few miles the other direction, there was this another count we used to hold to. The guy had a multi, well, the house, this is 40 years ago, the house was worth a million then, probably worth five million now with Biden's inflation. But uh, <laughs> that, that guy, he had a swimming pool. He had, I mean, he had the latest cars, luxury cars. You do work for him. You would send him a bill. It wouldn't come for months. And then you would call him. And then the, bill, the check would come. It wasn't signed. Oh, I can't believe we didn't sign that check. All kinds. You never would get the check unless you sent somebody there to actually ring the doorbell and ask for the check. Eventually, a guy lost that big house, lost the cars, filed bankruptcy, everything. Because it was all, it was all an appearance. These two brothers I'm talking about, they're called the Fuller Brothers. They wore overalls. Even if they were going for a day off, they just have clean overalls on. <laughs> I recently finished a book about the Battle of Midway, and I love history of World War II. I had my dad there and four uncles in that war, so I love to study about the different battles. So the naval battle of Midway was a very important battle, and it actually turned the tide in the war. Up to that point, the uh, American Navy was losing big time to the Japanese. It's interesting because there was this guy in Hawaii, a commander, and another man named Edwin Layton. They led an intelligence office. out about 100 men in a basement, no windows. Joseph Rothford was like a genius, but he was real nerdy, and he never had his tie straight. Uniform was always wrinkled, and their group was called Hypo, and nobody paid any attention to them. But Admiral Nimitz, who was over the Pacific Fleet, began to realize that maybe these guys were smart enough he should pay attention to. So this John Roford said, I believe there's going to be a battle. The Japanese are going to go for the island of Midway. And he says, well, I just can't, you know, bank everything on it. He says, well, I think we could do a test. Let's send a message out to Midway saying, we're bringing you new water system since yours is broke. In a few days, they saw Japanese messages saying, we need to load up a water system for AF, which is what they were calling Midway. So John Roford predicted within an hour, location, time, where the Japanese ships would be. The Japanese were planning on taking the island they weren't planning on any ships being there. And then once they took the island, they were planning on the American ships coming after them, and they were going to eliminate them. This guy, John Roford, was in appearance the guy you would least likely believe because his appearance led to believe that he didn't know anything. And yet underneath that was a guy who made this enormous contribution to the entire World War II because that battle was so strategic. And the Americans 
won that war and begin to turn the tide. Today we are looking at Jesus' fourth hearing. He had six of them. His first one was before Annas, the former high priest, during the middle of the night. And then he was taken before the Sanhedrin during the night. And then he was taken before Caiaphas, the present high priest. And then early in the morning, he was taken to Pilate. And then Pilate shifts him off to Herod. And then Herod ships him back. There's six different hearings that represent the trials of Jesus all night until noon the next day. So what we are looking at right now is the fourth of these hearings with Jesus and Pilate. The Jews and Pilate didn't think that Jesus was a king. He didn't look like a king, and he never looked like any king that they could imagine, and they dismissed the idea that he was a king. I would like for you to read along with me as I read the passage we're going to discuss today. It's John chapter 18, verses 24 through 40. Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? And Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. All during the night, the Jews had plied Jesus with question after question about his teaching, his followers. Of course, they had great jealousy, and they saw him as a threat to their reputations and to their livelihood. Just a few verses prior to what I read, Jesus responded to at one of the hearings during the night to the, his enemies. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. 
Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? It had been a grueling, grueling night, a mockery of a trial. What the Jews and Caiaphas, who is the chief priest, wants is for Jesus to die. But he wants a public death. He wants Jesus crucified so all the people can see that this is a criminal. So it says in verse 28, Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate's residence is called a praetorium. Anywhere a governor resides or a Roman official is called a praetorium. And his, his residence would have been inside Herod's palace. So they go, they dare not enter because they can't enter the house of a Gentile or they would be ceremonially unclean. So verse 29, so Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? They won't even list the charges and there is no love lost between Pilate and the Jews. They hate him, he hates them. If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would have not handed him over to you. What sarcasm the Jews have for Pilate. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law, but we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus said about the kind of death he was going to die. Now, the Jews could have killed him. They killed Stephen a few months later by stoning him. They could have stoned him. They didn't worry about the Romans when they wanted to kill someone. They just killed him. They might have had their hands slapped, but they didn't want to kill him. They wanted him crucified, and they wanted a public display. This Deuteronomy 21:23 says, because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. Caiaphas, the Jews, wanted the people to know this is a cursed man. He said that he was God. He taught about God, but really... He was a cursed man. But this little mind of Caiaphas does not realize that Jesus has predicted his own mode of death, that he will die by crucifixion. In John chapter 3, verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. It never entered Caiaphas' mind, never paid attention, never learned anything about Jesus, but Jesus had already predicted that he would die by crucifixion. Now, Pilate, of whom Jesus is before, is an ambitious Roman. He's a very wicked and evil man. He was originally from Spain. He wound up marrying Augustus Caesar's granddaughter. Therefore, he got this position as governor of Palestine. But from the very moment he arrived, he caused enormous problems. When he came, he came bearing the seal of Tiberius as he marched in with his Roman soldiers. And there was a riot, and he sent plain-clothed soldiers into the riot with daggers killing. On another occasion, he robbed the temple treasury so he could build an aqueduct. On another occasion, while Jews were, were worshiping, he came and killed them, as Luke says, mixing their blood, the blood of Galileans, with their own sacrifice. He was very wicked. And Rome was actually not very happy with him because they wanted their governors to have peace. And there was constant riots wherever he was. A few years later, there's indication that he actually committed, committed suicide in what is today France. This should have been an easy case for Pilate judging Jesus. 
It should have been a simple matter. Frank Morrison, in a book, Who Moved the Stone, writes about Pilate. Pilate and Claudia were probably spending the night together on the evening Jesus was arrested, and that Claudia would therefore have known the visit of Caiaphas, or whoever made up the Jewish delegation, and would have known of his purpose. The result was, of course, as she went to bed, her thoughts were quite naturally on Jesus, and so her dream. When she woke in the morning and found that Pilate had already left the palace, she at once guessed his business, so she quickly wrote the warning, which Matthew records. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Pilate received that message, and it seems to have had some effect upon him. So I want to cover, first of all, Pilate's confession before Jesus and Jesus' confession before Pilate. Let's look at Jesus' confession before Pilate first. John 18, Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And there's a special emphasis on the you here in the Greek in all four Gospels. It's emphatic. Are you the king of the Jews? Now, Jesus certainly didn't look like a king. He has peasant clothes. They have mistreated him. There's blood. There's sweat. He doesn't have the appearance of a king. Jesus' answer, is that your own idea, Jesus answered, or did others talk to you about me? What is Jesus doing? He's turning the tables on Pilate. Without Pilate ever knowing it, he is going to be the one who is interrogating Pilate. There are reversals in God's economy. It always happens. The meek rule the least, the poor, the rich, the weak, the strong, the unlearned, the wise— God loves to turn things upside down on their head. In this trial, it will be Pilate who will find himself being interrogated by Jesus. Pilate answers with contempt to Jesus' question. Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? And Jesus goes right to the heart of the matter. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. If Jesus had said, yes, I am a king, Pilate would have immediately ordered his execution because he would be a threat to Rome. But he never said that he was an earthly king. He said he was a spiritual king. My kingdom is from another place. Pilate hardly knew what to do with that. What a contrast between Jesus, the spiritual king, and Pilate, this material king. Pilate had spent his whole life pursuing earthly power and glory. Jesus had given up his glory to come to this planet as a peasant. Pilate valued what he could touch, taste, feel. He lived for whatever he could find that would gratify. Jesus had taught us to not pursue riches and not lay up for ourselves riches on this earth, but in heaven, because here they won't last the moth will eat them up, or interest will eat them up. Riches will take wings and fly away. Pilate was a master manipulator. But Jesus would never manipulate people, even as he stands before Herod. Pilate sends him to him, and Herod demands that he do some miracles and entertain him, and Jesus will do no miracles whatsoever. Jesus does say to Pilate, 
that he was born to establish this kingdom. For this reason, I came into the world. Christ is in control of Pilate, not Pilate in control of Jesus. Jesus now makes this very kingly confession. It's very powerful in verse 37. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. Or everyone who recognizes that I am a king from heaven will listen to me, will heed my voice, and they will learn the truth. Do you remember when Jesus performed the miracle of feeding the 5,000? And then the people continually came to follow him. And he said, as Jesus kind of laid open their hearts, he said, you follow me before the loaves and the fishes. And if I give them to you, you'd just be hungry again tomorrow. And they said, well, we want bread like Moses gave the people. And he says, you don't need bread like that. What you need is the bread, that eternal bread that will always satisfy the deep longing of your soul. And they said, well, give us this bread. And in John 6, 35, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. You would think the people would say, wow, you are the living bread, especially having seen him perform a miracle of feeding the thousands and thousands of people with just this little handful. But you know what they did? They actually rejected him. They didn't want this king who could satisfy their spiritual need. They wanted a a material king that could give them bread and cars and boats. You know the connection. Today we don't want little bread, but we do want the cars and boats and all the other stuff. Listen to this verse. The same story in John 6, 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back, no longer followed him. That day, this encounter when Jesus said, no, you don't need bread and fishes. What you need is me. And they didn't like it, and they turned around, and they left. And as Jesus said that he is the truth, and that whoever whoever listens to him will learn the truth, Pilate makes this unwitting confession. It's so powerful because it is so relevant to today. He says to Jesus, what is truth? In verse 38. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for charge against him. So what is truth? But he's not interested in the answer. He asks the question and turns around and leave. He admits he doesn't know the truth, but he's not interested in finding out what the truth is. That's a picture of modern man today. What is truth? I don't know what the truth is. I think we're all searching for truth, but he really doesn't want to know the truth. Pilate is a picture of what the world looks like today. So you take the word modesty or humility. We should have humility in our ambition. We should have humility in our accomplishments. No one likes a braggart who's always telling what they did and how they did it because they're not complimented with with humility. Humility makes you like a person. Today we meet many people who, who have no humility and they're braggarts. But do you know where humility has settled? I'm talking about Christian people. It has settled on conviction. They're so humble, they don't want to speak the truth. This week, I saw on television this ad, and I probably, if you watch television, you've probably seen it, this humongous ad about saving the animals of the world. 
And, and I actually like animals, all right? Don't, don't write me. I like dogs. Cats, not so much. Uh, I do like cows, horses, pigs. I was raised around all these animals, all right? So I like animals. But this, this picture, this advertisement just goes on forever, ever wanting you to send money because these animals are being mistreated. And tell me when you've seen an advertisement asking you to support human life that is being taken in the womb. The truth of it is there is more effort to save animals than there is to save humans, human life. And if you speak up, there is the possibility that you will be isolated. So it's better to be very humble about speaking the truth. Have a lot of humility. The truth of it is we should never be humble about the truth. We should never be humble about sharing the conviction of truth. I mean, if you see the President of the United States and whoever else saying that it is totally okay to take a five-year-old or eight-year-old and nine-year-old and give them hormones and let them choose their sex and affirm them, and we all just step back like there's nothing we can say about this, we know good and well that that is a distortion of the truth. And yet millions of Americans are afraid to speak out about something. This week, I saw there's about four and a half million people have crossed the border. So there's an invasion since Biden has been president. Four and a half million, probably conservative, had just come across the border. So I saw them ask the press secretary. They said, people are just crossing the border. And the press secretary says, no, they are not. <laughs> they actually treat us as if we have no mind, no eyes. Pilate says, what is truth? And he turns around and walks away. This administration wants us to do that. It wants us to think that truth is whatever they tell us it is. It is our job to seek the truth in every area of life, to seek the truth and to stand for the truth, regardless of what the consequences might be. In verse 39, the verdict comes. But it is, this is Pilate speaking to the crowd. He's already sent him to Herod. He's got him back. He's very discouraged because when, when in question him, he found out Jesus was a Galilean. So he sent him to Herod. I mean, it's the same building. Just take him up to Herod. Herod tries to make a show out of Jesus. Jesus won't play with Herod. Herod is a demented individual. He dresses Jesus up. He has him beaten, dresses him up in royal robe. He sends him back. So Pilate, with the message he got from his wife, the interaction he's had with Jesus, he knows that Jesus is an innocent man. He knows that he's not worthy of death. So they have this custom to release a prisoner every year at this time of Passover. So it occurs to him, maybe I could resolve all this by just releasing Jesus. So he says, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? He seems to think that people are going to say, yeah, we'll just take Jesus. He's totally unprepared for what happens. Mark says, a man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprisings. He's a, he's a very bad man. He's a murderer. He's caused insurrection. Luke says, Barabbas had been thrown into prison for insurrection in the city and for murder. And 
John says, they shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. And Matthew says he was a notorious murderer. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So this vile prisoner is the one that they choose over Jesus. And to his surprise, Barabbas is the one the crowd wants. They want him to be freed. Barabbas is probably uh, about half a block from where this interaction is going. He certainly can't hear the interaction between Pilate and Jesus. He's in a prison called Antonia, a dungeon. He certainly would have been able to hear the yells of the crowd. Here's the way the interaction went. And some of this maybe Barabbas heard. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? The crowd yells, Barabbas. Pilate, what shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Christ? And the crowd yells, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate says, why? What crime has he committed? The crowd shouts more, crucify him. Then it's at this moment that Pilate goes in front of everyone, gets a basin, calls for a basin of water, washes his hands and says, I am innocent of this. This is your, your crime. And the crowd actually yells out, let his blood be upon us and our children. Barabbas is a hardened prisoner sitting there. And he is, he is scheduled to be crucified. I mean, Barabbas is. This is the way the Romans execute people. Nails will be driven through his hands. He'll be hung on a tree. He won't be taken down on a Friday before Sabbath. He'll be left to hang there for, for a week. And he knows that's about to happen to him. But as he's hearing this cries, crucify Jesus, give us Barabbas, he's hearing that somebody is actually going to take his place and he is going to be released. Dr. Barnhouse writes, Barabbas was the only man in the world who could say that Jesus Christ took his physical place. But I can say that Jesus Christ took my spiritual place, for it was I who deserved to die. It was I who deserved that the wrath of God should be poured out upon me. I deserved the eternal punishment of the lake of fire. I was delivered up from my offenses. He was handed over to judgment because of my sins. This is why we speak of the substitutionary atonement. Christ was my substitute. He was satisfying the debt of divine justice and holiness. That is why I say that Christianity can be expressed in the three phases. I deserved hell. Jesus took my hell. There is nothing left for me but his heaven. Two verses in the New Testament express what happened that day when they chose Barabbas and crucified Jesus. Because Barabbas represents us all. We are the murderers. Maybe we never murdered someone physically, but all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the mark. We are all sinners. Paul said what happened when Jesus went to the cross, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a beautiful, beautiful expression of what happened on the cross. And then Peter actually says something similar. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So what is truth? The truth is that Jesus, who was sinless, who had never sinned, went to the cross for Barabbas. But not just Barabbas, 
for every human being that accepts his death. It's not universal. It's not automatic. You have to reach out and receive it and accept it and acknowledge it through repentance. There are churches that preach that Jesus' death is universal, that all people are saved. Regardless, you don't have to do anything. It was an automatic thing. But that's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches repentance, that we have to actually acknowledge that we are sinful, repent of our sin, and ask Jesus to give us this gift, and he gives it to us. And we are saved, and his death on the cross saves us from our sins. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. And if you've never actually realized that you are Barabbas, that you are the sinner, you are the murderer, you are the one that Jesus took your place, this is a moment for you to acknowledge that. Say, dear Lord, I realize I am a sinner. And I realize when the crowd cried, crucify him and turn Barabbas loose. That's what I would have done if I was there. I would have been with the crowd. I wouldn't have shouted something else. We all tend to go with the crowd. I realize my own sinfulness. I realize that I am lost. But to think that you went to die in my stead is a very humbling thought. I repent of my sin. I turn away from it. I acknowledge my sinfulness and I ask you to save me. I receive your death as a substitutionary death for my sin. I receive the gift of eternal life that you gave me by dying on the cross. Please save me, Jesus. And I want to be your son, your daughter, your servant and dedicate all of my talents and all of my life to serve you. And Lord, we thank you for this beautiful story. It wasn't Pilate who was judging Jesus. It's Pilate before Jesus. He turned the tables. He was in control of every aspect. He chose the death by which he would die. He knew he would die on that cross, and he never ran from it. He walked toward it, and he was crucified for us. Thank you, Father, and thank you, Jesus, for that wonderful gift which brings us salvation. And we give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.